Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We have a two-part show today. First, we're going to talk about the Tech Worker Handbook with Ifoma Azoma. And second, we're going to explore the ideas behind the Filter Bubble Transparency Act, which was introduced in the House of Representatives this week with Anil Dash and Eli Pariser. First up, Ifoma Azoma is the founder and principal of Earthseed, a consulting firm advising individuals, organizations, and companies on tech accountability, public policy, and health misinformation. A tech policy expert, Ifoma is a co-sponsor of the Silence No More Act. The legislation, which was recently signed into law by Governor Gavin Newsom, allows everyone in California to share information about discrimination or harassment they have faced on a job, even after signing an NDA. Ifoma led an initiative to provide tech whistleblowers with needed resources called the Tech Worker Handbook, and is now leading a project to scale the protections in the Silence No More Act to more companies and workers via shareholder activism. Here's Ifoma. My name is Ifoma Azoma. I'm the founder and principal of Earthseed, um, and most recently the co-sponsor of the Silence No More Act. Earthseed is the consulting firm that I founded after leaving Pinterest that uh, focuses on tech accountability and is the umbrella under which I've done all of my work over the last year. So the Tech Worker Handbook, the bill, and the work that I'm continuing now. The Silence No More Act is legislation that I co-sponsored in California that uh, was recently passed by the California legislature and signed by Governor Newsom, and it addresses the use of non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements in employment situations. This effort, particularly to help whistleblowers, has been obviously in the news. It's hit at almost exactly the right moment. Uh, You couldn't have possibly predicted, of course, uh, that Francis uh, Haugen would come forward at sort of precisely the moment that you were planning to roll this out. But how has that news cycle affected your project? Uh, Well, it's definitely uh, been part of the conversation around the handbook, uh, but I'd been working on the handbook for over a year. And so there, there were a number of reporters I spoke to who Uh, over the last year have been eager for the handbook to come out because they uh, wanted to share it with their own sources and with folks who they speak to regularly who need more advice and more information, but of course can't get it from them because of the reporter source relationship. So folks can check it out at at techworkerhandbook.org. I'm going to ask you just a couple of diagnostic questions on it, just so people understand sort of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, may, and maybe first, I'll just start with the question of you know, who is this handbook for? What types of workers and at what types of companies? The Tech Worker Handbook is for uh, workers, all of the workers, not just full-time employees, not just contractors, part-time employees, but anyone who provides labor in any way, whether you're a dishwasher or a bus driver, or a senior engineer, or a counsel at a tech company. Um, so whether that's a startup or a publicly traded company, I, I think it's important for folks to have access to resources about how to find counsel, 
uh, how to talk to reporters, uh, how to establish guidelines for a conversation with a reporter, how to share their own story, how to share information with government agencies, uh, and most importantly, how to protect themselves. Because if you're working for a tech company, you're essentially working for a surveillance operation. And so you want to make sure that you're protecting uh, both your digital information and then also your uh, physical self, because there are companies that have been known to send private investigators after people, uh, whether to find information or to harass them, the companies don't ever say. Are we seeing that uh, even more so right now in some of these pushes to unionize um, those types of of interventions? Absolutely, Uh, especially with uh, unionization drives, there's a ton of physical intimidation that's taken place. Uh, most recently, or most recently reported at least, uh, with the Amazon drives, both in Bessemer and in New York. I want to ask you just uh, quickly a couple of highlights on, you've got four guides essentially on the handbook, the legal, the media, the security, and the stories that you just mentioned. As far as the legal, the kind of legal piece, are there a couple of high notes that you would hit in terms of the first thing that, you know, there could be possibly a person listening to this who thinks I, I have something that should be known in the world. Um, What would be the first piece of advice that you give them? The first thing I would say uh, for legal is uh, definitely look through the handbook and look through the information that's there. But you want to first establish what your goals are, if you're even considering whistleblowing and uh, get a sense for what your risk tolerance is. So there's a personal assessment there Uh, And I worked with the Signals Network, an organization that provides legal guidance and uh, media guidance to whistleblowers and and folks who have already come forward about uh, information in the public interest. But you want to establish what your personal situation is. And that's both looking at your finances and determining whether you can even afford to do this. So can you afford to be out of a job? Can you afford to pay for your health insurance when you lose your job? Can you afford to pay for counsel if the counsel that you found or you want to go with uh, is not willing to work on contingency? There are all sorts of things that you really, really practical things uh, that often aren't part of the conversation, but are very much things that uh, whistleblowers and tech workers should be thinking about because they're real burdens that are placed on the individual and their family when they're all of a sudden going up against a multi-billion or trillion dollar corporation. Have you seen cases where it's gone wrong, where someone's stepped forward and has faced those types of repercussions? Everyone I know who has stepped forward um, and, and certainly those who have raised concerns internally ahead of time have faced various repercussions, whether that's being sued uh, whether that's losing your job, losing your health insurance, there are all there's a whole range of repercussions that people face. And even when it's not the repercussions that people think of most commonly, how many folks who step forward then are able to find a job and what was their career or their chosen field after they've spoken up? So a couple of points then on talking to the media. Are there particular things that you think that people should think about before they come and talk to someone like me? Yeah, I I think it's really important, again, to think about what your goals are, and that helps determine which type of reporter you speak with, uh, which type of outlet you go to, 
uh, how you share your story, uh, even something as simple as deciding whether to talk to a reporter or whether to post your story on Medium or on Twitter first is important for folks because uh, when you're doing something like this and making yourself a public figure, especially if you're coming forward with your name and your identity, uh, you really want to stay in control of your own story and, um, and understand what it means to put your story in the hands of any given reporter and so uh, working with Linus, one of the things that I wanted them to address in this guide was uh, the different choices that people have. Because I think for a lot of folks who don't have experience working with reporters or working with the media, there's a power imbalance right away because it feels like if someone asks you something, you have to answer everything, you have to speak on the record, and that's not the case. And so it really is about empowering people with the options that they have. I want to ask you about just the kind of volume of queries that you're getting, um, you know, not, not for the analytics on the website or something, but um, I assume that you, well, you've mentioned in public reporting that you're getting lots of DMs, of course, all the time, and that may not be necessarily a sustainable channel for you to offer this advice, but you know, I don't, what's it been like um, these last couple of months, particularly since, uh, you know, whistleblowers have been so in the news? Yeah, since coming forward a year and a half ago now, I have received probably thousands of messages on LinkedIn. Uh, sometimes people get my phone number and text me, email, Twitter, for sure, Instagram, basically wherever I have a presence, people reach out. And it's not just tech workers. I hear from people across all sorts of industries. I've heard from doctors. I've heard from lawyers, uh, from people who work in government who are interested in all of the types of information that I've included in the handbook. And that's one of the reasons why I thought it was important for it to exist because none of the information is new. All of it has existed, but not in one place and not in one place where it's organized so that it can be useful for people. Um, and I know, even though I've heard from hundreds, thousands of people at this point, uh, there are many more who probably don't feel comfortable reaching out for whatever reason. And I wanna make sure that they have access to the same information too. So I wanted to kind of quickly get your sense of just the uh, potential for change. I mean, you're, you're a you know case in point of what can go right, blow the whistle, get involved in, legislative process uh, actually, you know, contribute to change in law. But, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who are skeptical that even, uh, you know, the most well-placed whistleblower can necessarily lead to uh, the type of change that some sort of think is necessary in this country. And what would you say to the skeptics who are not convinced that, you know, any, anything will lead to the moment of change? I don't think that things happen spontaneously. And so, and you said at the beginning of the question that I'm an example of things going right. I lost my job. I lost my health insurance. <laughs> there have been uh, quite a number of repercussions that I faced Fair in enough. coming forward. Yeah. So uh, go right is certainly subjective. Uh, but with my case, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to both speak up and push for actual change. I don't think that's the responsibility, certainly, of anyone who has decided to come forward. Uh, coming forward is enough and uh, entails enough risk 
and responsibility that the burden shouldn't be on them to push forward the actual change. But this is where I sort of agree with the skeptics that, and I said this on a panel I was on earlier today, that hearings are just hearings. Hearings are not bills. Hearings are not reform. They're not the actual regulation that we need. And I think uh, particularly in this country, a lot of people want and hope for things, but don't actually do anything. And we need more of the doing, less of the hoping. And, and that's where I've tried to play my own role in doing things. I saw a need for resources. So over the last year, put together the handbook, working with a number of partners, uh, I saw where the law was lacking in California uh, in an employment situation. So I pushed for things there. But I mean, I hear from people in all across the country all the time saying, oh, I can't wait until my state takes this up. And my question to them is, why aren't you reaching out to your lawmaker to ensure that that's the case? Things don't just happen magically. Are there other misconceptions people have about whistleblowers, maybe similar to to my own? I mean, I, I think that they're not necessarily misconceptions, but people only see what they see. You only know what you're able to read, what you're exposed to. And most of people's stories aren't told when uh, you can have a 3000 word profile, which uh, I, I haven't seen one about a whistleblower, but you could have one that long that is still not going to include everything that someone's faced, everything that they did before the point at which it became a story. And so uh, there's just so much context that is going to be missing that I think it's important for folks to just put themselves in the shoes of someone who has had a job that they liked or liked at some point, at least, uh, is living in a capitalist society, needs to pay bills, and is still deciding to put all of that aside and speak up because something has gone so terribly wrong that that's the only option that's left to them. One of the things I've been talking to people about lately with regard to the revelations around Facebook is, you know, what we, what we seem to have learned about that company is perhaps different from maybe even some of the other tech firms that there's a essentially a kind of, you know, founder CEO in place who uh, also controls the board. Um, who does not seem to answer to anyone. And when faced with an ethical decision about whether to reduce harm on his platform or to sustain his profit, uh, he often chooses the latter or perhaps mostly chooses the latter. What would you say to employees there uh, about who are faced with that dilemma? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I, my approach to all of this is unless you're an executive, You've got to work to pay your bills to support your family. There's no conscious um, consumption under capitalism. So I can't, I'm not going to tell anyone to leave their job because, okay, you leave Facebook and you go to Alphabet. Is the, are things any different there? I think the control is less loose over the board at the very top. That's the only difference that I see. Uh, even at Facebook, the, the focus is often on Mark as it should be because the buck stops with him, but he's surrounded by people who are making decisions all of the time. 
uh, like the head of policy, like his head of content policy, like his COO, who are all in my mind equally responsible for the harm that's taken place there. And so I think for folks who are there or who are looking to join, my question would be, what is it that you can do in your role on your team to change things? And if you have the freedom to go somewhere else or do something else, uh, then you should do that. I think where I have the biggest issue with, uh, with people who work at a place like Facebook is the ones who push forward the false marketing and the honestly misinformation about the good that the company is doing while either ignoring completely or lying uh, outright about the harm that's taking place. If you're honest about what's going on, that's, that's about all that we can ask of rank and file workers anywhere. Is there any difference in the way you think about kind of ethical responsibility between perhaps, you know, engineers or others who are faced with maybe decisions that, you know, push large numbers of people in one direction or another versus someone who's say got a very commercial job. Maybe their job is to sell ads or I don't know, as you say, kind of mind the grounds of these, these companies or, or something like that. Um, is there kind of like a ethical difference in, in the way that you think about their responsibilities? Not really, because I actually think that, I mean, from my perspective, working on the public policy teams at all of these companies, there's sometimes more harm taking place on the sales side than, than on the end side. So depending on the role, there's harm possible everywhere. And so I wouldn't make that sort of delineation where folks have more power than I think they recognize is a team like the site reliability engineers uh, have actual control over the way that the platform functions and whether it functions or not. And that's where I think if there were more collective action, if a team like that, or even a, a large proportion of the team decided to go on strike, that would be the type of thing that would get the attention of company leaders. If the sales team or a large vertical within the sales team decided to go on strike, that would be the type of thing that I think would change, uh, would change things in a way that we haven't seen from all of the hearings, from all of the lawsuits and whatever else that's taking place externally. I hate to ask a, a very basic question, but I'm going to. There's so much reason to be sort of pessimistic right now about tech. A lot of people are uh, down on the sector, down on the potential of, of change inside these behemoth companies. They only see things headed sort of one way. Where do you net out? Do you maintain optimism? And what's the time horizon for that? Yeah, I get this question a lot. I'm really practical. I don't Thing. I, I personally don't spend time like hoping for anything. <laughs> I just like what can be done. Is that something I want to focus on? Then I do it. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how terrible things are or will continue to be. Uh, so I just am not built in a way that I think in a way to answer that. Uh, that's satisfying, but, but I wish more people were focused on action, then maybe there would be less uh, doom uh, for all of the things that people are depressed about. Like, what are they doing to actually change it? 
I, I, I think that if people uh, were pushing their members of Congress as hard as Facebook's 15 lobbying teams, both internally and externally were, then maybe we would have more progress from the Senate Judiciary Committee. Those folks are all being funded by Facebook, even though they're sitting up there on either side of the aisle pretending to actually care about regulating the company. Those folks all have constituents who could also be handing them, but their constituents aren't. Well, that seems to be a problem uh, very broadly with the American political system at the moment, not just to do with tech. Right. Are there any, any shout outs or any uh, uh, kind of uh, you know, other entities that you would direct folks who are interested in this question to? I know you've got a bunch of contributors and partner organizations. Yeah, the, all of the contributors to the handbook, I think, are excellent. And their organizations, uh, especially if you're a tech worker and you're considering uh, speaking up and you want one-on-one help, they are the first folks to go to. Uh, I, I think, I mean, this is sort of an anti-shout-out or a call-out, I guess. There are a lot of organizations, I think, that say they're invested in tech accountability and are taking this moment when there's a lot of focus on whistleblowing and on quote unquote accountability to add their names to the coverage. And I haven't seen much from any of them. I, I personally spoke to a number of the organizations that have been named prominently as part of the Facebook papers and all, all everything that's happening with the whistleblowing right now uh, to support the Silence No More Act, and most of them were not interested. So I really wonder what it means to be focused on accountability and whether that stops at the reports, whether that stops uh, with the broadcast news interviews and the hearings, and what that actually means and where it extends to when we're talking about actual change. My basic thing is if more people actually did more than talked about things, we would see change. And I just don't know what it is uh, to push people to that point, because I know a lot of people want things to be different. But again, wanting isn't enough. I think this is a, a problem across the, the country right now with so many different issues. Um, and I, I wonder sometimes if the issue is not that people feel simply overwhelmed with the number of things that seem intractable. It's true. It's true. And there are so many things. You just find the one thing that you're interested in and want to change enough and then move forward. Well, you found that. Um, and what's next for you? How long will you stay uh, working on this uh, or what's next? Yeah, what I'm working on right now actually is uh, engaging shareholders, so going from the legislative side to the private side, on pushing companies to adopt the policies from the Science No More Act to their global workforces. And uh, that has resulted in some wins, like Expensify and Twilio deciding uh, to extend the policies because it makes sense, it's the right thing to do. And also you're going to have to do it in California come January. So why not? Uh, And then other companies like Apple basically saying um, to F off. And so we filed a shareholder resolution against them. So we're going to duke it out with the SEC and see what comes of that. Well, I think I'll uh, be more optimistic knowing that you are in the fight. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. 
New York City musician Kevin Bira playing the Kalimba near Union Square last week. If you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press/podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. This week, the Filter Bubble Transparency Act was unveiled in the House of Representatives. The proposed legislation was sponsored by Representative Ken Buck, a Republican from Colorado along with David Cicilline, a Democrat from Rhode Island, Lori Trahan, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Burgess Owens, a Republican from Utah. And it would require that, quote, the internet platforms give users the option to engage with a platform without being manipulated by algorithms driven by user-specific data, unquote. The language is nearly identical to a previous Senate version of the bill sponsored by Senator John Thune, a Republican from South Dakota, that was reintroduced in June. He first put it forward in 2019. A quick aside, I'd encourage you to read an article by Will Aramis in the Washington Post titled Why Facebook Won't Let You Control Your Own Newsfeed," which touches on this legislation and on experiments that Facebook has run on its newsfeed ranking algorithms and how it arrived at the opaque system it has today, which offers the user little choice in how information is presented. The article references reports surfaced in the Facebook papers, a trove of documents brought forward by whistleblower Francis Haugen. And of course, if you want to look at the text of the bill itself, you can find it at techpolicy.press. To explore the ideas behind the proposed legislation, I spoke to two people. Anil Dash is the CEO of Glitch and is an entrepreneur and writer. He is a board member for organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, The Markup, a nonprofit investigative newsroom pushing for tech accountability, the Data and Society Research Institute, and the Lower East Side Girls Club, which serves girls and families in need in New York City. Eli Pariser is co-director of New Public, which aims to inspire and connect designers and technologists to build more flourishing digital public spaces. He is also an author, an activist, and entrepreneur focused on how to make technology and media serve democracy. He helped lead MoveOn.org, co-founded Avaz.org, and wrote the 2011 bestseller The Filter Bubble. We talked about the act and Eli and Anil's views on the tech policy environment generally. I'm Anil Dash. I'm the CEO of Glitch, which is a community where people make apps. And I'm somebody who's been thinking about social media for about 20 years. And I'm Eli Pariser, and I'm the uh, co-founder of New Public, which is trying to kind of figure out how do we make digital public spaces and bring people together around that goal. Also, not coincidentally, the author of The Filter Bubble. And that is what's brought us uh, onto this call today to talk a little bit about uh, a piece of legislation which uh, came back into the the public consciousness this week uh, as it was reintroduced in the House. Led appears by by Ken Buck, a Republican, but with uh, multiple co-sponsors, Democrats like Lori Trahan and others. Um, the Filter Bubble Transparency Act. And I noticed the two of you, you know, not surprisingly on Twitter, expressing your points of view about it and thought that it might be nice to have a, a conversation just to see where your perspectives diverge. Eli, maybe we'll start with you because you first tweeted about this in 2019 when the Senate put this forward. And at the time you were, you were keen on it. It felt like it was a, a, good, a good piece of legislation. What was in your mind back then? 
first off, I just feel like anytime uh, a book that you write becomes the title of a Senate bill, like you have some like marketing obligation to be part of the No. Um, but uh, I felt and feel like we in the like paying close attention to tech and regulation and policy space underestimate the degree to which people don't at a broad level totally get the very basic mechanics of how these platforms work. There was some Pew data that came out a little while ago that I don't have right in front of me, but you know, it was like a large chunk of the American public still doesn't really understand that you're not seeing everything that your friends are posting on Facebook or on Twitter and that there's something happening in between. And so to me, you know, as someone who wants people to be uh, literate about how big tech works, I think this is like a solid literacy play. Like, I think it's, I think it, it requires, in some ways, I, I like the part where the companies are kind of required to put up a big sign somewhere that is not hidden that says, like, we are using algorithms. The algorithms use your personal data. That's going to affect what you see and what you don't see. To me, like, that's a lot of the value. Because I actually think when people look at the raw feed, it's not going to do a whole lot for people. Like it's not, it, it does not have the effect in my experience of, you know, the scales have fallen from my eyes and now I'm seeing the real uncensored internet. It's just kind of a bunch of junk. And so, which, is, which speaks to like these algorithms don't exist for nothing. Like <laughs> they're, they're doing a bunch of stuff. So I can talk about like, why at the end of the day, I feel kind of lukewarm around around it. Like if I had my, if Congress could take on anything related to all this, I don't know that this would be my pick, but I guess I think that literacy piece is important. So before we go to Anil, I just want to ask you um, one more diagnostic question, Eli, which is that, you know, certainly since you published the filter bubble, things have changed a lot. The, the platforms have changed. The algorithms have changed. There's been now, uh, you know, a lot of research, which, uh, has given more nuance to the nature of, yeah. of the, the filter bubble, whether there is a filter bubble problem uh, at this point. Um, what's your what's your view on that? Where, where do you kind of net out these days? Yeah, I mean, I've actually changed my thinking on that quite a bit. And I think when I wrote the filter bubble, there were a couple kind of assumptions that I was making that I think a lot of people still make about digital space, but that I now find like a little a little naive. One is that, you know, is this sort of idea that like, oh, if only we were in touch with ideas that we weren't, you know, the, the opposing ideas. If only I, as a good liberal, read Fox News more, I would be more empathetic to the concerns of like the Republican rank and file. And I think that like Chris Bale has done incredible work on this empirically, like, nope, you know, the, the kinds of content that I'm likely to run into from the other side online are are generally going to predispose me even more against whatever the other side is. And so that exposure hypothesis doesn't really like stand up. I think second piece is more broadly, I feel like, you know, the filter bubble metaphor kind of suggests that content is the most important piece of the puzzle here. And I've come to believe that it's really much more about relationships because content only matters as much as like the, the relational context in which we see it in a lot of cases. And so 
I'm much more interested in how these networks structure like trust relationships than this idea that like, oh, if I see one right-wing extremist video or one ISIS video, I'm all of a sudden going to become an extremist. And then I think the last thing I'll say is the other challenge with just thinking about the algorithms is that you, it obscures the role of kind of design and the whole experience, which I do think is like a really critical part of digital, digital experiences as well. So people can, at this point in the discourse, kind of get over, over obsessed with like the algorithm as opposed to like all the other ways in which uh, companies structure interaction. So Neil, I want to come to you. And I, the tweet I saw from you, uh, the beginning of your your thread on the Filter Bubble Transparency Act, kind of started the way I feel about a lot of tech policy these days. Uh, good intentions, um, but but possibly some some problematic implementation. Can you kind of explain your perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, I first I want to start with like vociferous agreement with I think ninety nine percent of what Eli just said, and also uh, appreciation. I think the Rhetorical framing that Eli has provided us with around filter bubbles has been largely, you know, enormously valuable in the cultural discussion. And I think that's something that like is a non-trivial act of, you know, intellectual work, right? I think it's really important. And so, and there's also this thing that I've seen from other, I'm lucky I have friends that think of these big ideas, like these things catch a momentum of their own and they become something other than what you wrote in your book or what, you know, what, what, what your sort of theory or philosophy of this thing was. And, and I think there's this sense of like, you, you have a little bit of a, um, you know, the Frankenstein's monster thing where it's like, well, I, I thought it'd be cool to try this out, you know, and then you sort of see what people do and run with it. And, and I think this is sort of where my, you know, perspective on this comes from. I, I, I had a chance to read over the text of the House bill. I, I believe I'd read the Senate bill when it came out a couple of years ago, but my memory is not good enough to remember. Um, and, and, you know, and so there is, and I think I, I started with this, like absolutely good intent. And, and, and actually, interestingly, there are a lot of things I can praise. I think first is it's extraordinary that it's bipartisan. It's a really rare moment that people are pushing for accountability of some sort uh, in a bipartisan way. Now they're doing it for op- opposing reasons, the same reasons all the, like the recent congressional hearings where everybody's sort of going for a different thing, but they, they, you know, the intersection, there's an overlap of their missions and that's like, all right, that's an opportunity. It's a window of opportunity. Um, I think there are a lot of other really positive things. The, the, the framing of the house bill starts from a thing that actually exists. They talk about Twitter, you know, has a little switch that you can toggle between their algorithmic sorting of your timeline and reverse chronological sorting of your timeline. And then they sort of use that as a basis for what they suggest. That's rare. Tech regulation almost always starts from like a, well, a policymaker's conceptualization of what they think the tech is doing. And then wouldn't it be cool if you ought to do this, right? And and generally they, they you know, from a tech perspective, they come up with the suggestion of the very first thing you think of before you put any thought into it. And then they write that down. And, you know, this is not that this is saying something that actually exists in the world and can be done. You know, there's also a real tendency to like, well, first you should invent, you know, uh, a perpetual motion machine and that'll solve this other problem. And so like, I think those are really, really positive and, and like worthy of praise and also actually worthy of like the process that praise for the process yielding something that is, that is workable. So like, those are all the like, not just praise, but like effusive praise. I'm really, really positive about. And then there's the part which like I come into where like, you know, my background is like, I've always been a person building platforms and building technology and, and been doing it for a minute. And even my own work, let alone the platforms I'm more critical of than the stuff I've done. Um, the problem has been being insufficiently cynical. 
And, and I hate to say that because I'm an optimist and I'm, I'm still somebody who believes in technology and still somebody who believes in policy. But the way they twist it, I'm also, ah, man, I should have thought of that. I should have thought of that. And so you have to like, uh, and it's interesting because we have this practice in security engineering of, you know, almost like red team, blue team. Like you go and you look at like, how would you exploit this? How would you take this apart? And that's where, you know, unfortunately for my own brain, like that's where I go first on looking at policy. And I'm like, okay, if you're Facebook and you're committed to being a bad actor in the ecosystem and you see this policy, what do you do? They're not going to say, we've seen the light. This policy encourages us to do the right thing. And therefore we're going to implement a thoughtful control over our timeline that, that has an algorithm you can understand. And, and then baked into this also is a, there's still this yearning desire for providing information to be the panacea, right? So like as Eli said, the, like, we thought like, okay, you're going to be exposed to your opposing viewpoint and then you're going to see the light and you're going to be like, we're all going to you know, welcome each other in, in a warm hug. And I was as guilty of that as anybody, right? Like I definitely, because you want to believe that, right? And then I look at like, we're going to let you know that this algorithm is changing the way you see, and then you have a set of controls. And then they could be like, great, transparency on this platform has made me trust it and make can give me control over it. And now I believe in it. And it's like, we actually already know what the end game of that looks like, which is, um, you know, and, and this is actually really important. This is not a both sides thing. There is, you know, the, the sort of rising, um, you know, fascist movement in America has already decided to take a bad faith view of any algorithms that are there. And they've been able to game the refs very, very effectively, Facebook most effectively, right? So they sort of lie and say, the newsfeed isn't favoring us when the newsfeed is blatantly favoring them. And then, uh, and then Zuck rolls over, right? And he has board members encouraging to. And so then if I look at what's the most likely outcome of informing people that there's an algorithm and Facebook is the whole game here, right? Cause we're talking about social media and we're talking about the feed. And that is the thing that everybody's obsessed with. Now, I think there are many, many other factors. I think YouTube's a huge factor. I think, like, like, I think there's lots of other platforms that are pertinent, but if we look at like, and I actually think YouTube skates by on a lot of stuff where they're actually are worse for, right. But um, the cultural dialogue about this is going to be about Facebook. And so if we, if we sort of grant that premise, there is no alert that can appear in the blue Facebook app, even if they rebrand themselves meta, that are going to make people look in good faith at what the platform is doing and say, I trust this. And so what, what are we solving for, right? And if it's, there's, there's a lot of different goals in, the, you know, in this kind of policy. One is user control to be able to opt out of these things, right? And there's a danger even in the specifics of the language of the bill, which is algorithm is like planet. Uh, in that there's a layperson's understanding of what the word means and then a professional's understanding of the term. And so when Pluto was no longer a planet, people lost their minds. Nothing changed, but everybody lost their minds. Technologists are losing their minds over the, the way algorithm is used in its vernacular sense in this bill and in the headlines about the bill in particular, which again, they're not part of the text of the bill, but they are part of how the bill is received and how people vote on it and decide what it means to them. And so in that case, I mean, everything is an algorithm. Right. Alphabetical sort is an algorithm. And tellingly, the bill talks about social networks, but it also talks about search results. It also talks about social media. And, and we elide the difference between social networks and social media a lot. Right. So it's just technically nonsensical to say you can't use an algorithm to, to return search results on a search engine because there's always an algorithm that can be chronological. It can be alphabetical. It can be, you know, handpicked by, by you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. 
but whatever that algorithm is, it exists. As long as it can be encoded and coded, it exists. And so that illegibility of the use of a core concept between the regulator context, the layperson's context, and the technologist's context sort of summarizes the crux of why I'm like, okay, we're going to get the worst of each of those worlds. That's what happens, right? When, when, the, when the policymakers and the technologists have a different definition of the same word, they end up on the worst possible intersection of their definitions. That's just like consistently been the case. And so if I look at like, what's the worst case scenario of like bad faith interpretation of what you mean by exposing an algorithm? Well, the platform's determined to skirt accountability, which are Facebook, you know, Google, YouTube, and all the others are going to say, well, you told us we can't use an algorithm. So we're just going to let everything flow through here. Right. Because they've been saying this for a long time, which is like, we're doing so much good. And it, in fairness, they have trust and safety teams and platform health teams that actually do a lot of valuable stuff. I mean, you can't imagine, I would not want to imagine what is already filtered. Like the, the stuff that Facebook actually does filter. And they feel like we're doing God's work because we're keeping you from seeing child abuse material from seeing death on your timeline. Everybody would be seeing that every day, if not for those teams. So like they are doing valuable work and they're like, that's our algorithm, right? Like they're always going to look at themselves as the angels on this thing. And if I know the cynicism with which they operate and also keep in mind their extremism about regulation and policy, right? The leaders in these organizations are unrecognizably outside the continuum of American historical thought about policy and regulation. Like, like Peter Thiel actively wants to demolish our federal government, right? Like we have not had business and he's on the board of Facebook, you know? So we have not had business leaders who are this radical. Like we've had people that complain about taxes. We have not had people say there should be no capability to make law to regulate companies, right? But this is the agenda and why they're going into metaverse and crypto and all these things. So if we say that is the context and we know that he... Uh, you know, in Peter Thiel's case, will fund the destruction of media organizations as he did with Gawker and will fund white supremacist organizations, including those who, you know, rallied on January 6th. Compared to those things, it's trivial to say, we're just going to act in bad faith on this algorithmic thing and just let the most vile stuff on the platform flow because they tried to regulate us and we want to punish them for doing it. Right. And that's the end game that I think this goes towards, which is like, everybody had good intent. I believe that policy is actually as well-written probably as it can be given the constraints of what it is. But if I had to bet on what we would see in our Facebook apps immediately after this law were passed is we're going to point the, the, the fire hose of the worst things on the internet at everybody on our platform. If they push the button to show them the Washington DC view. And again, I look at the, um, the example of this is uh, Uber, right? So Uber came to New York. They, they worked with Brad Tusk, who was like, you know, I'm going to be the fixer man uh, to, to get you into New York City. The, the folks who've now successfully rallied to organize taxi workers here in New York, you know, pushed back and said exactly what would happen. They're going to undermine public transit, undermine the taxi system. And then once they're able to do so, they're going to jack their rates way up and we're going to be left in lurch. That's exactly the playbook that happened. And what they did in response is they said, they're fighting your ability to get a cheaper ride on Uber. And they put a Bill de Blasio button in the UI of the app. It was like, here's what your rates would be if Bill de Blasio gets his way. They are almost exactly what the rates are in Uber today. And so, and even though they didn't get regulated out of existence as they might have. So what they do is they ascribe it to the policymakers. They ascribe it to the regulators and they put it into the actual user interface of their app. And so like, 
The most likely case is every regulator, every policymaker who's made this rule would get their face on the button in Facebook that says this view of puppies being kicked is brought to you by these regulators. Like that's what I think would be the most likely case I'd see on my iPhone within like a week of the law passing. And that is like, it's terrifying, but I'm like, I can't find the, the flaw in that path that I just laid out where they wouldn't do it. So Eli, and he'll yeah, take yeah. Us to, he's taking us to violence against puppies and, Puppy and, and, a, a, I am the and, puppy kicker. I'll admit and to dead that. Bo- and dead bodies strewn all yeah. over the place. Um, is it, <laughs> before we go to the dark place, is there anything um, you might might still say uh, in favor of this? this yeah. Bill? Well. Well. I. I mean, Facebook. Look, Twitter has already done this, as you said. Facebook has done this at times. Uh, they they had this option, like you know, nine years ago or whatever, where you could like see your your yeah, feed. Yeah. Yeah. They and they uh, they kind of kept you know, it. And it's like buried, but it was around for a long time. Yeah, it was around for a long time. It's like gone away, come back. Um, so I'm a little skeptical. Like, if I'm Facebook, I think Facebook's whole game. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to uh, double down on the cynicism here and say, like, I, I think Facebook's long game is regulate us in a way that entrenches our power and that solves your political problems of needing to seem like you're whacking at us, right? And so I actually think this is like, if I'm a Facebook lobbyist, I'm like, yeah, cool. Come at it. Like, like let's, let's do it. This does not cost us any money. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a big issue for us to implement. Um, we can probably do some cutesy animation that like helps people, you know, learn about algorithms or whatever. And like, fine. And I guess that's like, m- my objection is more in that category of like, there are some serious structural problems with how social media is working, that like, I don't think this is going to get us anywhere on addressing, then like, um, they're going to choose this bill to, uh, to, to zap Congress, because I because I actually, you know, it's like, if you get any newsletter that is directed at the Washington um, intelligentsia, you know, there are like five Facebook ads in every newsletter that are like, please regulate us. It's your fault. The internet sucks, not ours. Um, that's kind of their whole model. And I think like this, this bill kind of fits, fits the bill. Um, one, one technical thing, like as I read the bill, it's specifically just on the search point, like, I think what they're, trying to draw a distinction between, and I think this is an interesting distinction, is like uh, non-explicit but user-specific data that is being used to tailor the algorithm. So the idea is not actually that it's like algorithm versus no algorithm as much as like algorithm driven by my personal data versus not. And, And I actually think like I did that TED Talk 10 years ago where I showed like different search results people are still like shocked when you tell them that like Google is doing that with their search results and Google to its credit actually like mostly isn't now in a bunch of those areas that I showed then, but like that's, that's still like not people's, not the lay interpretation of what a search, how a search engine works. I totally agree. People don't understand personalization is there. And and I mean, I think the thing I should make clear is I 100% agree with you from an intellectually honest standpoint. 
I don't think they're going to be intellectually honest about it. And I think that's, that's the thing I really struggle with is like, it's actually hard for, because I'm trying to even imagine what agency is going to be responsible for enforcing this and investigating Mm -hmm. this. Right. And, and, and we always work with the, like, everybody's a rational actor acting in good faith. And so we start from that, like, you are right about what the text of the regulation says about, like, we're going to show you the personalized view and the non-personalized view, right? They're going to conflate non-personalized with non, you know, garbage filtered or whatever we're going to say, because they, they see those as part of the same function a lot. Of, and, and actually Google doesn't, and I, I agree, like, I think to their credit, they've gotten better. And a lot of this because of the push from this kind of stuff. I mean, I remember... Um, the late great Aaron Schwartz had done a, a mm. project at seven on seven many years ago where he showed like just Google search results being different around the world. All that was, was geographic yeah. personalization and people's minds were blown, you know, let alone that, you know, we've got a speaker in your house listening to you and, and, and customize your search results. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that's right. And I think this is this thing I, I mean, is, this is sort of struggle of all of tech right now is like, we're working from the rational actor standpoint and there is a, and again, this is a right-wing concept. That, like if you're in total culture war, the idea that you're going to tell the truth to your opponent, you know, they've read Sun Tzu and they're like, that would be a fool's, <laughs> fool's act is to tell the truth to your opponent or to say something accurate about what, what battleground you're fighting on. And so, you know, we start from this, like they're rational actors and they're business people running a multi-billion dollar business. Surely they would engage with what the text of the bill says and not try and game this thing. And I look at even as far back as like Microsoft antitrust suit, you know, they, they, they were the sort of like, you know, piss on your leg and tell you training kind of stuff about like, we can't possibly take the browser out of the, you know, the OS. And it's like, as it turns out, you're not even using that browser anymore. Right. And, and so I think that's a, um, that's this thing that we've consistently gotten, you know, the Lucy pulling the football away from us is Charlie Brown on. They, they have this this challenge to the intellectual honesty of it. And so that's the part that I worry about. And I, I think it's something that could be addressed, but how do we constrain it into something that that they can't weasel out of? You've kind of pointed out, uh, both of you, in the kind of gentle uh, for and against we've had here, that in some ways this does not, this is this is a minor, in a mini was a minor little intervention. It's not, not the big thing. Are you in any way optimistic at this point, you know, pulling back? From, from this minor little thing, um, that we're anywhere close to the type of reform that we need to address these broader issues. Do you, do you see a path forward at all at this point? I think we're, I think we are far from the kinds of comprehensive and effective reforms. I think we'll probably need to actually build a better ecosystem. Like even, even if we were to get towards some of the uh, anti-monopoly stuff, Hey, that's going to be, you know, a decade in the making <laughs> and B doesn't resolve a whole bunch of like, it makes some of these challenges worse and some of them better. And it doesn't resolve like some of the core challenges. So I do think this is like, it's a, I guess my biggest critique would be, I, I don't think we ever get to where we want to go with big tech regulation by reacting to particular sort of problems or features that we want to tweak. Like we we have to somehow fashion a vision of what the kind of digital environment is that needs to be built and then work backwards from that and think about where regulation sits in that. And there is a need for that. And I, I think probably in terms of data portability and a bunch of other th- things. But I think like absent that reference point, it's going to be like some little kind of um, 
you know, scoring points approach. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of what Eli says. I think one of the most important insights, you know, he'd said towards the beginning of this conversation was the, the user interface determines so much of this. The, the experience that users have determines so much. And it's almost, you know, I think about like, you know, the way the fonts are laid out on Substack makes the information look credible, regardless of what the information is. That's the stuff that we don't really talk about and can't even conceive of putting a regulatory framework around. I think we should look at the fact that this conversation is even being had and that it's bipartisan as a triumph. As, I mean, that moves that the ball has moved so far from where it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I, I think that's phenomenal. Um, I do think, and, and things always start around the margins, around the edges, around the things they can understand. So I think that's that's fine. I think from, as a goal, those of us who care about these issues, one should be looking to make the regulation as boring as possible, right? It shouldn't get headlines. It should be something that seems prosaic and mundane. I look at like GDPR in in, e, in the EU and like everybody agrees it's imperfect and annoying, but it's every single company is working on it. Every single company has implemented something and it just is, there's not even a debate about it, it just is something to do. And I think that's, that's really powerful. You know, the other thing I look at here that's really a huge opportunity is how do we start the ball rolling towards, there's actually tremendous cultural push towards decentralization again. Like these things come in and out of favor and like what they call web three, there's a lot of hype and spam about this stuff. But the truth is like people have come back into finding interest and value and giving people control over their experiences and over their data. And that's great. Let's tap into that cultural zeitgeist. So those to me seem like the secular trends that do open up a window of opportunity that we haven't seen the likes of in a generation. So I'm sure we'll continue to have that conversation, uh, certainly uh, on Twitter, and I hope I hope in this context as well. But I have to ask you, uh, if you were a sitting member of Congress, each of you, you've got a yes or a no vote. Uh, what what would you choose on the Filter Bubble Transparency Act, Eli? Yeah, I'm going to vote yes for the for the literacy reasons. I I think um, that probably outweighs you know some small downsides. Anil. I think, can I vote return to committee? <laughs> I, I, I think I think there's a couple of small changes that make it a lot stronger, but I probably would, would vote yes, even on the current text. Great. Thank you both so much for speaking to me about this. Thanks, Thank Justin. you. That's it for this special episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.